Yeah, my name's Kyle. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, genuinely excited that you're here with us this morning. Uh, kind of through the craziness and the funness of September, but starting a new series now. And so maybe just to get the ball rolling, to get the brain juices flowing, here's the question. Where do you think the church is missing it right now? Maybe ask it a different way. Does the church have any blind spots that are keeping us from being all that God has designed us to be? Blind spots that are keeping us from doing all that God has called us to do. Perhaps a couple examples as we were thinking about this. In medieval time, uh, there were certain churches who during their gatherings, uh, they didn't want their services polluted with the diseased with the orphans and the widows and the homeless and the destitute. And so what these churches would do is they'd cut peepholes in the side of their buildings so society's unwanted people could look in to the church service, but the people in church wouldn't have to look at them. Right? The church did that. And so we can sit here now and look back and say, how did they miss that? That seems so obvious. Take some of our Christian heroes. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the men who have shaped evangelicalism. These men own slaves. Seems like a blind spot in their theology. Like, how did they miss that? I was recently reading about a church that was in Nazi Germany. It was located near a railroad. And every time the train would come by, they could hear the cries and moans of the Jewish people being hauled off to concentration camps. And so what this church did was they put in a louder pipe organ. And that when the train would go by, instead of having to listen to the cries and the moans, they could just worship God a little bit louder. Missing it. And it's easy for us, I think, to sit back and read these stories and hear about this and shake our heads and say, how did they miss it? But let's not be so arrogant not to ask, in a hundred years, when our great-grandkids look back at us, Will they be shaking their head, looking at us and asking, how did they miss that? Is Genesis missing it right now? Because see, today we're starting a new sermon series titled, Dear Genesis. And for the next two months, we're going to be in Revelation 2 and 3. Because these two chapters of Revelation, it is made up of seven different letters to seven different churches who are all missing it. Right? And, and the heart of the letter is to identify where they were missing it, but then to repent and to recapture all that God had designed the church to be, to recapture the dreams and the mission of the church. And that's our heart for the series, too. If God wrote Genesis a letter to identify where are we missing it, to repent, but then to grow together and reclaim what God has for this church, what God has for the greater Boston area. And the beautiful thing about the heart of this series is we want to grow together. Because if you know me, you know I say this often. Uh, when you come to church, there's no you and there's no me. There's only us. Right? And I say it often because I believe it's fundamental to how Christ views the church. Because you realize like the New Testament, with the, with the exception of three letters, they're all written to churches. Because the churches are meant to grow together. If God wrote Genesis a letter, what would it say? Yeah. As a way of intro to the series, 
I really simply want to ask one question. What makes a letter worth reading? Because we're going to dedicate eight weeks to reading seven different letters to seven different churches. You better have a reason to keep reading the letter. So what makes a letter worth reading is actually pretty simple. It's the sender. Right? Because think about like when you get junk mail, you don't even open it. It's an impersonal sender. You just throw it right away. Gmail literally sorts your emails based off the sender. And if the sender seems personal, it'll throw it to your inbox. If it seems impersonal, it's going to spam. Right? The sender matters. Because on the flip side, do you remember the last time you received a handwritten letter in the mail? Like, you don't even know what to do with it. You look at it, and it's like, is this a ransom note? <laughs> Somebody get kidnapped? And then you open it slowly, and you read every word, because the sender's very personal. And he took the time to write you a letter. The sender matters. That's why you read a letter. So if you have a Bible, open up to Revelation 1, verse 4. And this morning, I'll tell you up front, we are going to camp out in like a verse and a half. Because if the question that's guiding today is, why read a letter? I simply have one purpose, to explain why the sender of these seven letters, to explain why the sender of a letter to Genesis, why he is worth listening to and why he matters. So verse 4 of Revelation 1, let's go. John. Okay, just to give context. John was Jesus' best friend on earth. Rome tried to kill John by throwing him in a vat of boiling oil. Now, oil boils at about three times the heat of water. When that didn't kill John, Rome was so freaked out, they exiled him to an island. And so here John sits, alone, old, flesh melted down to the bone, and he's just thinking about Jesus, his best friend. John. To the seven churches that are in Asia, that's going to be the recipients of the letters. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. All right, here's our text. Here's the sender. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Why read the letter? Because the sender is unequivocally unmatched in who he is in every way. All right, so who is the sender? Point one, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The sender is the faithful witness. Okay, so what does that mean? What's the faithful witness? Uh, let's not overthink this. Think of it in a courtroom. What does a witness do? Right, the attorneys call up a witness, and the witness testifies to everything that he or she has seen. Everything that they've heard. The attorneys ask lots of questions to make sure the witness gives every detail that they can remember to paint the fullest picture of the truth for the court. And what John is saying is that Jesus Christ is the only one who faithfully and accurately reveals the truth. He is the faithful witness. Right? And what he means, he's the only one who accurately reveals who God is, what God is like, what God's plans and purpose and prerogatives are, he accurately reveals the truth. That's the faithful witness. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. John 18, Jesus is talking with Pilate. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, 
to bear witness to the truth. He's the faithful witness. See, there are very few people who ask, was Jesus true? Did Jesus exist? Right? As we kind of, kind of come up with Christmas season, History Channel, Discovery Channel, they're going to have all these specials that talk about who was Jesus. And it doesn't really matter if you're non-religious or religious. Uh, almost all historians, scholars can come to agreement and say, in the first century, there was someone named Jesus who started a religious movement. He was true. The question people do ask, however, is, is what Jesus said true? Can Jesus be trusted? And John's emphatic answer is yes. All that Jesus revealed about God, all that he revealed about life and human nature, all that he revealed about sin, all that he revealed about death, all that he revealed about ethics, all that he revealed about morality, all that he revealed about eternity, it was all true because Jesus testifies to truth himself. The sender is the faithful witness. He is the only one who can claim total and absolute truth. And now take that statement and place it in our culture. Because that flies right in the face of it. We're in the culture of fake news. Everyone tries to claim truth. Fox News tries to claim truth. CNN tries to claim truth. Science tries to claim truth. Philosophy tries to claim truth. In fact, we're kind of in this postmodern era where it says, truth is actually constructed, truth is relative, so you claim truth. I claim truth. We all are fighting for it, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. That all falls woefully short because I'm the only one who can adequately and accurately claim truth. I am the faithful witness. And I hope you're asking, of all the things that John could have said about Jesus, why is the first one that he's true. It's because John's writing to a persecuted church. He's writing to persecuted Christians. And what's the first thing a persecuted Christian is going to ask? How much do I really believe this? Am I willing to give my life? Am I willing to be tortured and killed for this? Do you struggle with doubt? Do you question whether or not this is all real, reality? Well, be encouraged because... John says, the sender of the letter, it's all true. That's why you read, that's why you listen, and that's why you respond. But John's not done. He keeps going. And what I love about this text, what I love about the Bible, you guys, is that we can all read it, we can all see the same thing. Right? You do not need to be a superhuman, super scientist to get scripture to understand what's going on. Point two, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, in the firstborn of the dead. Why do you listen to the sender? Because he is the firstborn of the dead. Probably the most heavy metal title we have of Jesus. Firstborn of the dead. Why firstborn of the dead? What's he saying? Well, what he's not saying is that Jesus Christ is the first one to raise from the dead. Right? Because Lazarus raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. The widow's son at name raised from the dead. So he's not saying that Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead. Think of it in ancient culture. Who had the family rights, privileges, and inheritance? It was the firstborn. And it's actually kind of the idea behind the Greek word here. The idea is uh, power, rule, claim, and ownership. So if you've been zoned out for the last five minutes, I need you to come back to me because this is a crazy statement that John makes. 
He says Jesus, the letter sender, has authority, rule, rank, and ownership over death. Jesus owns death. Jesus pulls the trump card on death. And he's the only one. Right? Because for everybody else, death owns us. Like, we're all going to die. We are all subjected to death. And I know that we know that cognitively. Do you ever realize how much time we spend trying to escape the reality of death? How much time we spend trying to pretend like it's not going to happen for us? Just look at how much money we spend trying to look younger and feel younger. I have some numbers for us. $16 billion on cosmetic surgeries that are non-invasive. That's Botox and like thermal body sculpting. $21 billion on over-the-counter vitamins that make our joints less achy and our muscles less sore. $15 billion, I don't want to mess this up, on wrinkle cream, skin care, and hair dye. And that's not just a woman thing, right? Because I see you just for men platinum. <laughs> no silver fox out there looking good. And none of this is like a bad thing, right? But it points to this underlying current that none of us want to look at death in the face. We're all trying to think that we can escape it. And I know this sounds ridiculous because in a room like this, I'm on the younger side of things. But uh, this is a safe space, right? Honest room. Uh, this week, like, I tweaked my back because I sneezed too hard. <laughs> like, I promise you that back in the day, I was like a young athletic stallion. Uh, I get lightheaded when I tie my shoes now, right? Because death owns me. Death is coming from, for me. Let me just ask you, in the spirit of honesty, are you afraid to die? Does the reality of death scare you? it's coming. If there's a hint of fear in that answer, just hear Jesus say in Revelation 1, fear not. Why? Because I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. The letter sender is the firstborn of the dead. He has the keys of death, and his message to us is, don't be afraid, because I am the living one. Right? That the, the letters that the world sends us, the letters that so many of us read, the letter that says, you know, your life is about your happiness and your pleasure, so do what you want, sleep with whoever you want, spend your money on whatever you want, just make sure you maximize your pleasure when you're here. That letter is the, a letter that death comes through. And that is the letter that's going to be sealed with your blood. But the letter that Jesus Christ sends, that letter offers life because that letter is sealed with his blood. Fight familiarity here, but stay with me. Christians do not die. Like Christians don't die. If you're united with Christ through faith, his death, your death, his life, your life. So yeah, on this side of eternity, death's coming. Don't kid yourself, it's coming for you. But for the Christian, life to life, with not a second in between.
and you will be taken to the place that you were created to be in the presence of God. Because the letter sender is the firstborn of the dead. And he can give you life. If he wrote Genesis a letter, why would you read it? Oh, because he's a faithful witness. And because he's the firstborn of the dead. All right, I'm getting revved up here, and so is John. So let's keep on going. Again, let's get back to the text. Guys, we can all see this. We can all pull the same thing from it. So from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, point three, the ruler of kings on earth. So not only does Jesus pull rank over death, now John twists it and says, he also is the supreme authority on earth, right? Which means there does not exist a government or an organization or an institution or a president or a king or a tyrant who is not in subjection to Jesus. Jesus rules them all. Revelation 17, they will make war on the Lamb, that's Christ, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is the ruler of all kings on earth. So who do you think, right now, are the most powerful and feared rulers on earth? Right, who are the people that we all listen to, we take seriously? Uh, give me some grace on some of these names. Abubakar al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, the leader of the most feared terror organization on the planet, responsible for thousands and thousands of murders. You realize what John's saying? He's saying that that guy will bow at the feet of King Jesus. Saif al-Adal, the leader of Al-Qaeda, responsible for thousands and thousands of murders. Do you believe that he's going to bow at the feet of the ruler of kings? Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, the guy who is using chemical weapons on his own people, killing men and women and children. No, he will bow at the feet of King Jesus. Kim Jong-un, the nuclear threat, the guy who's executed at least 70 officials just for looking at him wrongly. Do you believe that he is going to bow at the feet of King Jesus, the ruler of kings on earth? And see, here's what's been getting me all tripped up this week. If any of those four guys, among many others, if they were to write America a letter, and in that letter it said threats and attacks, and it said who and where and when and why, can you imagine the publicity that letter would get? Right? The FBI, CIA, Homeland Security. Like they would dissect that letter down to the comma. Every news outlet would be the headline of about this letter. Actually, depending what that letter said, it would absolutely change the way we live our lives. And yet the sender of the letter to us, the ruler of kings on earth, for the next eight weeks, how much will you let that change your life? Because here's the reality. You and I will bow at the feet of King Jesus. Philippians 2, 9 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're all going to bow to the ruler of kings. And the grace of the gospel is you can bow now and receive mercy. Or you will bow under the weight of wrath. Have you bowed before King Jesus yet? Have you bowed before the ruler? What's keeping you from it? You don't think Jesus was true? No, he was the faithful witness. You don't think he has power to save? No, he's the firstborn of the dead. If you haven't bowed yet today, man, the gospel is offered, it is proclaimed. If you bow, he will receive you with open arms. He will love you, he will hold you, he's not going to reject you. After, during service, after service, come find me, we'll bow together. Hear the gospel, respond to the gospel. The letter was written to Genesis. Why listen to the sender? He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead, and he's the ruler of kings on earth. That's who he is. And if that's not enough to make you read, listen, and respond, I'm not sure what will. But John keeps going. Like, John's just getting started. So let's get back to verse 5. Again, guys, we're in the text. We can all see the same thing. So John's going to pivot now, and from who the sender is, he's going to tell you what the sender's done. To him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Okay, so fight familiarity here. I just gave you my best 20 minutes of painting Jesus to look big and glorious and beautiful. Like, I know it's going to fall short because Christ is inexhaustible, but that was everything I had. As high and as exalted as he is, he looks at us in love. He looks at us and offers freedom. He looks at us and says, I'm going to make you into something. And that's the beauty in the heart behind the letters that Jesus sends. Like, if you're familiar with the seven letters in Revelation, you know they're pretty hard, they're pretty intense. But embedded in every letter is Christ's heart and love for the church. And it's just a call to come back to him. If you write in your Bible... Grab a pen right now. And if you don't write in your Bible, this might be a time to start because this is awesome. Circle the S on the word loves. Because the sender loves you always. The sender loves you continuously, without exception, without regret. The sender does not regret saving you. He is not just tolerating you. He is not shaking his head, wishing you would figure it out. He loves you consistently, always. Jesus Christ doesn't love you because of. He doesn't love you in spite of. He just loves you, period, always. And the reason he can love you always, grab that pen and circle the letter D on the word freed. See, the sender loves you always, because he's freed you definitely on the cross. Which means that there's no past sin, there's no present struggle, and there's no future failure that will keep Christ from loving you always. 
It breaks my heart when I talk to people who feel so condemned, who feel so ashamed, who feel so guilty. Brother and sister, drop the chains that have already been broken off your wrists. You have been freed definitely by the sender, which means he can love you always. Underline the word made. Because he loves you, because he freed you, he's made us into priests. You might be thinking, I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a priest. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the priests had the most privileged, yet most dangerous job. They were the ones who represented Israel and would go into the most holy place where God dwelt to interact with God on behalf of the people. In fact, it was such a privileged and dangerous job that many scholars believe that the high priest, they would have to tie a rope around his leg just in case when he got into God's presence, God would strike him down dead. That way they could retrieve the body. What Jesus has done is said, I'm giving you unlimited, unaccessed, intimate relationship with God the Father. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to wait until you figure some things out. He says, you can just come and enjoy relationship now because I've made you the priest through Christ's work because he loves you after he freed you. That's who you are. You are not defined by who you used to be. No, you're defined by Christ calling you priest. Why do you listen to the sender? Why do you read his letter? Why do you respond? Well, because of who he is faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of kings on earth. But you also can feel free to respond because he loves you, because he freed you, because he's made you a priest. I want to uh, conclude with uh, showing you this picture. We have this picture. So this is JFK uh, with his kids, John Jr. and Caroline. Now they're in the Oval Office. Uh, Oval Office, surrounded by bulletproof glass. Oval Office has 24-7 top-notch, top-secret security. There is no open-door policy at the Oval Office. It's where the most powerful people make the most powerful decisions that determine, literally, the trajectory of world politics. In short, you're not allowed to dance in the Oval Office. You're not allowed to giggle in the Oval Office unless the president's dad. This is the priest. This is what Christ did. He says, come into my presence. Come into the most privileged place in the universe and feel free to dance. Feel free to giggle. And if you're sad, feel free to jump into my arms. I'm going to whisper in your ear, I love you. That's the gospel. That's the letter sender. And you know what I love about this picture? If you're new to Genesis, I'm one of the worship guys. Zephaniah 3. As God's people sing and dance and worship, God sings and dances and claps over his people. Do you believe that? As we go into more worship, God is singing and dancing and clapping over us because he's delighted in us. He loves us. He's freed us. And he's made us into priests. And he's wrote a letter. So why do you listen? Why do you respond? Why do you pay attention? It's because he's a faithful witness. 
He was telling the truth. He's the firstborn of the dead. He owns death. He's given you life. He's the ruler of kings on earth. Every knee will bow. Why do you respond? Because he looks at you in love. He's freed you and he's made you into a priest where you can have unlimited access and enjoy God's presence. If I could close with just a moment of honesty. Um, I'm just kind of launching in to vocational ministry. Like, I've been going at it full time for 10 months. And obviously we're all called to be ministers of the gospel, but I mean vocationally. I'm just kind of brand new at this. Most of this job I absolutely love. Uh, a few things scare me. And one thing that terrifies me, I don't want to wake up in 60 years having missed it. Like, I don't want to have myself, my wife, whatever family God blesses us with, I don't want to pour us out for the next 60 years to wake up and miss what God had for us. Through those that God was calling us to something, and for whatever reason, it was a blind spot. And so I'm really excited for the next eight weeks. I'm excited to, with us all, just listen, be attentive, and see what God's going to reveal. And then I'm excited to respond and then see what God has for us in the future. But I promise you, he's worth listening to.